The Imposter Club is produced by talented people, staffing and headhunting company in TV production, with a mission to make the industry a happier, more creatively diverse place. Coming up... It's when I became the decision maker and I was walking into those spaces and it was confused looks and the almost coffee order until they clocked the name badge and then it all, no. <laughs> this is The Imposter Club, the podcast uniting all us TV, film and content folk secretly stressing that everyone else has it sorted except us. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, TV director turned staffing company founder and each episode, I want you to hear the real story of a successful industry figure. Not the glossy announcements we usually see, but the truth of their career journey, including the bumpy bits, to help you make sense of your own. Health warning, this podcast may incur whiplash from violent nodding, plus an unfamiliar but hopefully welcome feeling of belonging. Today, I'm warmly welcoming Sarah Asante to The Imposter Club. Sarah was the first ever black female commissioner in BBC history and is now an award-winning commissioning editor at UK TV, driving the multi-channel broadcaster's scripted comedy ambitions. She's responsible for seeking out, developing, commissioning and executive producing the clever and funny stuff we watch on channels Dave and Gold. Back at the BBC, she started in the comedy team as a development and digital content editor and was promoted to commissioning editor a couple of years later, looking after short and long form sketch and sitcom ideas for BBC Two and BBC Three, including cult hit sketch show and personal favourite of mine, Famalam, and comedy web series turned TV award winner, Dreaming Whilst Black. Sarah came into TV later than most from an established career in advertising. So I'm looking forward to asking her all the whys and hows involved in that. But first off, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me on the Imposter Club. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kimberly. It's great to be here. So let's talk about your relationship with imposter syndrome, if you have Mm -hmm. one. How would you describe... Uh, your feelings towards it and about it over your career? I think imposter syndrome, I've got sort of mixed feelings about it. On one hand, it feels like it's a um, a club for the others. It's the thing that only women get asked or people of colour get asked or people with a different sexuality get asked or ability. Um, so it's sort of... It, it comes across as a bit of a labeling thing, but on the flip side, it's also actually quite comforting to know that there are people having honest conversations about belonging and feeling like you're where you, you're supposed to be and the different conversations around that. For myself, I think you said in my intro, you know, I joined TV, um, the TV industry um, age 30, just before my 31st birthday actually um in 2006 so having been around people at different levels I joined as an assistant so I was in the assistant class with the young sort of early 20 year olds looking after commissioners who were only sort of five or six years older than me it really gave me an opportunity to kind of swim in between that space in a way that I don't think feeling like an imposter ever really landed with me 
because mm. I was there to learn. I was there to discover. I knew a lot about myself. So there wasn't a lot of bullshit that I would take on myself. Um, I could tell the difference between somebody having a go because they're having a bad day versus somebody having a go because they're an asshole. So <laughs> I think when you know that, you stop questioning yourself. You stop saying, oh, he probably shouted at me because of something I did or right. they're using all this jargon and I should know this and things like that. I knew straight away within myself, there are ways in which we talk in this industry are very exclusionary and you've got to do a quick search or a quick nudge of your colleagues sitting nearby and say, what the hell is that? Um, because you know this industry really does feel like a club and it does make you feel like if you don't know the right terms or went to the right uni or know the right friends or all of this kind of right tick boxy stuff, then you're not supposed to be here. And we all internalize that. And I think women in particular and outsiders internalize that more than most. So you said you came into the industry at 30. Mm -hmm. um, I would have thought that actually, you've been talking about self-confidence there. You actually came in with more confidence, you felt, because you were older. But actually, you could have been the exact other way. You could have come in going, I know nothing. I, I mean, how how did you choose the confident version versus that, oh my gosh, I'm totally uh, faking I, this? Yeah, that's innate. I think, you know, there are some of us who are sort of roll up your sleeves, never been in this building before, I wonder what I'll learn today. And that's definitely who I am, as opposed to roll up your sleeves, hope they don't find out I'm not supposed to be here kind of vibe. So yeah, I don't think I've ever, I don't enter many spaces in which I am completely unaware of. When I say I came from advertising to TV, I was in TV advertising, I was trained as a copywriter. So I kind of knew the space, kind of knew the, um, environment and also landing where I landed at a company like Channel 4 they had such a brilliant commissioning management team there that really looked after all of the assistants I moved around as a floating assistant I, I arrived in um, sort of March by August I was permanent and in that time I'd done a little stint with um, Film 4 a little stint with Acquisitions a little stint with Specialist Factual stint with news and current affairs and with commissioning management themselves looking after their diaries during the summer holidays and things like that and I just it was such a magical place to start and what I really appreciated is how they really embraced the buddy system so they made sure that my first week I had lunch with fellow assistants they made sure that every team has a couple of assistants they made sure that we spent some time together um, showing you the ropes. You were never thrown in at the deep end. They don't set you up to fail there um, in those days. You weren't set up That's to fail so there. Important. So that was really important. And therefore, and it's a lot of why this podcast exists, Sarah, in all honesty, because, I, you know, I want, we want people to know that they are not alone. There's so many people wondering the same questions, doubting the same things, struggling with something. And you were buddied up there with other yeah. people. Whereas this freelance industry where you don't get a job in a staff place very often exactly. um, was actually assisted you with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so let's go back to, tell me about Sarah. I want to know where you grew up. Like, was it always a given you were going to work in the media? Tell me about your background. It might have been a given actually. Um, I was actually born in Ghana, West Africa. Um, I came over with my mum back when um, kids didn't have passports. I was written in brackets as infant daughter Sarah 
that was my full title. <laughs> um, you know, we 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 kind of struggled. My mum kind of fell in love as soon as she got here. Dashing Ghanaian British man had three more children. Um, his dashing led to dashing off. So she was sort of left looking after the four of us. And as the eldest and within sort of Ghanaian culture, you definitely take on the co-piloting kind of role. And because I had learned to speak English um, fluently by the age of five, um, by the time my siblings came along, I was responsible for homework duties and making sure things were read and um, uh, done on time, handed in on time. I was a massive, massive SWAT as a student, as a kid. <laughs> I loved, loved, loved school. I loved learning. I was that asshole who was like, don't we have homework? Um, or and everyone I else was like, Sarah, <laughs> shut up. Um, I used to stick my hands in the end. It's like, oh, brain box again. Here she goes. <laughs> so I was always that girl. And, you know, with my black friends, it was old brain blocks, give it a rest. And with my white friends, it was like, why are you trying to act white? Why are you trying to speak proper and do your homework on time? So I always sat in this kind of like sort of middle ground. And ditto, I'd like to hang out with the cool kids in the park who were passing around the single cigarette amongst six or seven of us, or the single bottle of K-Cider amongst six or seven of us, <laughs> while also secretly going home and doing my homework and getting that in on time. Wow. So <laughs> That's, That is a stretch though, isn't it? To try and be the cool kid and the SWAT and the kind of co-parent. Yeah, so there was a lot going on. And I think that kind of cemented my ability to multitask. It also cemented my ability to do that thing called code switching, which is... Sounding street with my street mates, sounding proper with my office mates, hanging out on, on the park bench saying, oh, look at him playing football, he's cute, while also getting my homework in. So I was trying to be all things to all people, but not in a people-pleaser way, more in a, I'm really curious about all these worlds and I think I'm going to step into them all. Don't you just love that about our industry, though? I used to love that about freelancing um, and landing in a project and it was about, I don't know, one of them, a documentary about Britain's biggest babies. And I had to learn all the things all of a sudden about what makes a baby grow a certain way inside a woman's stomach and all the factors for us to cast and find the people. And the, and you just become for like three to six months an instant expert yeah, on yeah, absolutely everything. Bit, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then the next month I'm making a show about Heston Blumenthal and Little Chef. I mean, that that's what I love about TV. So you were able to do that by hopping between roles and departments. And that probably like really satisfied your your curious nature. Very. So imagine someone with a curious nature working in an industry where you're not boxed in. You know, as a teenager, I worked at um, Tesco and Portobello Road. I worked at House of Fraser in the coats department. This is your bit. This is your square inch. Don't go beyond it. You only sell coats. Don't talk to anyone about shoes. So going from those kind of regimented stay in your lane spaces to working in TV where the variety was endless. Um, you know, you say something like factual that could be anything. It's business documentaries, it's history, it's science, it's arts, it's religion. That really, really appealed to me. So as soon as I got there, it was supposed to be a two week um, uh, holiday cover and I ended up staying there for three years. Wow. And let's face it, when there is a label in telly to do with genres, no one really knows what it means anyway. They're all blurry around the edges, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. You know, what is factual entertainment? Ooh, <laughs> let's try and define that. Oh, tricky. Um, so your mum must have been incredibly proud of you growing up and looking after the, uh, you know, your siblings is the way you did and then launching your career in firstly advertising. Yeah, I think she was really um, 
disappointed in her inability to continue in education. I think she had me at 21. She got up as far as the Ghanaian equivalent of A-level, but she always instilled education in us because education was the one love of her life. Um, reading and languages. Um, she spoke English, French, um, Fancy and Chui. So she was very um, disappointed not to have that. So I was the first in my family to get a degree. I was the first um, in my family to make sure I crossed that threshold. So what made you choose the advertising side of TV then? And then how did you, how did you make that leap across to production? It was interesting because I knew I wanted to work in media. I skipped a little bit. When I was um, 11 or 12, please don't go and look this up, internet sleuth. Oh, already but there. I was, in a <laughs> I was in a TV show on um, Children's Eye TV. Called? And the whole Called? Time, I'll never say. Um, the whole time I was on there, I was far more intrigued with all the behind-scenes people than my fellow cast members or... Um, even the director or the producer, they just seem to be kind of very busy with clipboards. Meanwhile, there was a whole engine that was making it all happen. All of that was really, really fascinating to me. So there was always a fascination. And then when it came time to pick my degree course, I knew I wanted to do media, but I kind of wanted to do journalism. I wanted to do something to do with writing. And I did a media arts course and you had to pick a specialism and journalism wasn't available. But when I saw advertising, my best friend at the time was a fantastic illustrator. Her family is full of freehand illustrators. And then I saw that one of the, the pairings that you have when you learn advertising is copywriter and um, art director. So you have somebody knows how to write and somebody knows how to draw. So I said, let's partner up. I'll do all the writing. You do all the pictures. And that's why I picked advertising because I got to write and not in the long form of journalism, in the shorter form of advertising, but it was still storytelling. And I was always attracted to storytelling. So have you always liked the funny stuff? Have you always gravitated towards comedy? Yeah, I'm the funny one in my friend group. I'm the sort of the jokester. I'm the, I just think humour masks and also nourishes a lot in life, I think. You know, we have this um, phenomenon on the internet called Black Twitter and part of what makes Black Twitter so brilliant is no matter what the topic and it's often adversarial topics, we'll find the funny in it. You know, I didn't have a great childhood and, you know, we weren't, we were very, very um, poor as kids and we didn't know we were the poor kids until everyone bragged about what they got for Christmas and came in with different trainers after the summer and I think... I've always been somebody that sort of and always look on the bright side type um, and just kind of cracked on. And I've gravitated towards people that are of like mind. So my husband's kind of like that and my best friends are kind of like that. So, yeah, it's a real needs must, I think, because what's the alternative? You look at the reality and cry, you know. So, yeah, so looking for the funny has always been um, it's been a salve for me, but it's always been a default as well in just a minute. Something had clicked, some spark had happened where I knew I wasn't talking out of my ass. Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. 
Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote, you can just log in on your phone, tablet or desktop to collect, store and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee stained note saying blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month and with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conote.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. This is The Imposter Club, and this chat is with Sarah Asante. So let's go back to you starting in your uh, development job at the BBC then. So you sort of in scripted development, right? Yeah. And kind of, did you know you wanted to commission? I, actually, weirdly, um, just kind of track back a bit. So from an assistant at Channel 4, I then went to work in at ITV and then I had a little stint in production, in development, in production, and then came back to Channel 4 um before a couple of leaps to the beeb and the whole time i've always worked with commissioners i've always worked with the heads of departments and commissioners and i think that's such um it's such a shorthand and it's such a boost over the wall in terms of what it looks like to run a team what it looks like to be a creative lead what it looks like to manage multiple spinning plates um so i've kind of learned from the best and it's really interesting when I was interviewed, when I was invited to interview for the, um, again, a maternity cover slot at the BBC that ended up, well, that was meant to be six months and ended up being six years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was interviewed and I said, wait, what is this job? And they said, oh, it's development editor. It's sort of, um, it's getting your first point of contact for all the ideas. Um, we're pivoting to digital first we want to make sure that short form gets um as much attention as long form does and all this kind of stuff and I said right okay digital editor not commissioning editor because those guys don't have lives so as long as it's digital (laughs) editor I'm in if it's commissioning editor yeah they don't have work-life balance from all the ones that I've seen they are first in last out text messages at 1 a.m emails at 2 a.m sending themselves to-do lists. Interesting. So you knew that right off the bat, or or at least that was your perspective of it. Yeah, I had a real allergy towards any road towards commissioner. However, you're saying that as if you aren't one now. Are you talking about the Sarah then? 
looking at the commissioners then. She found a way to make sure work-life balance remained. Oh, oh everyone, yes. we're, we're going to get the yeah. secret of that right now. Um, so how did you, but how did you feel in those roles in those early days then? Like, how did you find those tangible things to do that <laughs> elevated you or made you deliver? I think I was able to track through, when I look at my CV, I can see how everything I've ever done has led to what I'm currently doing. You know, by work, by being trained in advertising as a copywriter, I understand how to tell a really full, robust story in the shortest amount of time. So it made sense that I'd start off as a digital commissioner because I was looking to, dig to um, commission short form. I had a stint at Fox um, International Channels where I worked with the acquisitions and the content sales team, identifying great scripts that were coming out of Fox Studios US that could sell all around Europe and rest of the world. So when I was working as a digital editor, that was mainly output on YouTube and that therefore global appeal and understanding what the global market is looking for. What are the universal roles, characters, subject matters that work? So working for a global channel at Fox allowed me to know what works globally. Um, so when we were releasing short form for Famalam, say, the clips that we were, we were selecting clips at script stage. And then once we saw them filmed and when we were in the edit, we were either saying, oh yeah, that definitely, we knew that was gonna work and that definitely will work as a standalone clip. Or actually that thing we thought would work, let's have that one instead. Because what we were looking for is what's universal, what's global, what just as a shorthand, anyone who had the volume off or different language would just get. And that's why we released a lot of those, you know, the aunties fighting over the leftovers of Tupperware and things like that. Once we put that out, then it's sort of Asian people on the internet. Oh my God, this is so us, Italian people. Oh my God, these are so my aunties. You know, Chinese people, oh my God, this is so. So we knew what was universally um, um, relevant to pump out there. And that had come, and a lot of that instinct had come from um, uh, previous roles, so. Right, yeah, yeah. So you were kind of, you sort of felt that what you had done before was a kind of an ingredient yes. in the, the the recipe of the thing you were then delivering. So <laughs> actually some of those other roles where you, I don't know, you were learning it, but perhaps not putting it into use suddenly came into use when you got into that particular that must have been a very exciting feeling yeah I remember myself talking in meetings and saying you know um there's something really universal about this type of characterization and that type of characterization I bet that will resonate here and I bet that will resonate there and then in the back of my head going how do you know this something had clicked some spark had happened where I knew I wasn't talking out of my ass. I was absolutely <laughs> piecing things together. And you know what? The imposter syndrome thing definitely was trying to mess with me in those early years because that was my first decision-making role. I've always been the coordinator of this and piecing together. I've always been first point of contact. I'll be the first person to see your idea coming in and knowing our needs and knowing the, di the department's um, tastes I'll pump it along to one of my colleagues. And because of my um, time in the industry, looking after multiple programs, having hopped from factual to entertainment to now scripted comedy and pulling all of those experiences with me, there was a lot of trust in my taste and a lot of trust in my judgment. But I am that rare thing of a 
commissioning editor who didn't come from the program making world. I came rising through the ranks of broadcasters. So that's more like the US kind of system where if you're at the network, you're the network person. And if you're in the trenches, you're the production person. So I'm very much the cut my teeth in broadcasters, rose through the ranks at broadcasters. So when you look left and look right and everyone's an ex-series producer or ex-exec producer and things like that, you think, who am I to tell them how to piece it together? Who am I to instruct them on how things work? But you can't doubt your ability to speak on those topics when you know the audience needs better than them. You've read the quantum qual research um, closer than them. You've watched all the output and you know what's worked, what hasn't worked, what was rejected, what was pushed through and why. You have all of this background knowledge that just on the surface, if you compare CV to CV, may not look like you have the same things. But at the end of the day, being a creative lead is about delivering to the channel's needs. It's not about whether I've been there and done that and done that too. And sometimes you can be a little bit micromanagey if you've done something before and don't and 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 don't find it comfortable just getting out of people's ways and letting them crack on. Whereas for me, I've never made it before, but I know good when I see it. And I know right for BBC Two or right for BBC Three when I see and hear it. So it's having faith that that's enough for me to be a part of the conversation. And that didn't come early, but it came. That is a really good point about micromanaging. I think that is probably one of the biggest faults I hear about commissioning editors when we're um, working with execs and SPs from production companies saying, oh, it's like it's like just another grassroots voice, you know, meddling. And actually, it should be a collaboration. But, you know, as you say, you need everyone has their own strengths. And if you've built a team around you and you trust each other, then everyone is good at something that then all together makes a brilliant product. Absolutely. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has kind of referenced or called out the fact that you've never made a program before? No, no, never. I think that kind of call out comes from someone being overbearing and I'm not overbearing. I'm a real championer of people. I'm a, tell me where it is you want to go. Right, let's get you there. As opposed to, right, get on my truck, I'll drive, you know? Because at the end of the day, a commissioning editor is the conduit to purse strings. They're the conduit to audience. They're the conduit to the relationship, the channel. They're a conduit to a lot of things, but they're not the one that came in and pitched the idea. So why would they know it better than you? They're not the one that made exactly what you've made, even in their past, even in their BAFTA winning past. So why would they lord that over you? So I think where I don't have the baggage of, yeah, been there, done that, do it my way and you'll get somewhere. I'm just able to champion and enable and, you know, walk beside people rather than walk in front of them and cast a shadow. Oh, I think I need a Sarah Asansi in my life. <laughs> Not driving my truck, but yeah. uh, telling me how to get there. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's a great attitude and relationship, I think, to have with the people you're working with. I mean, TV should be fun, right? We can't absolutely. lose the fun. It is really hard work and none of us got into this job for a nine to five. Or did we? Because you touched <sighs> on the work-life balance. Let's yeah. talk about that. Have there been really long hour difficult work lifespans periods of your life yeah yeah definitely I think I am don't leave until the job is done as a um ethos 
Um, I am stay until the last. If I haven't managed my time well and five minutes to midnight is the first time I've gotten to open this file or this letter or this script, so be it, that's on me. Um, I worked with the entertainment team at Channel 4 when we launched Stand Up To Cancer in the UK for the first time. We were up at Three Bridges Studio till two in the morning. Um, but in terms on keeping your sanity, we're not saving lives. What we're doing isn't a surgeon on call. You know, if I don't answer this in email, this red hot minute, no one's really going to die. You know, so it's just very, just being very pragmatic and being able to kind of check any kind of self-importance or oh, they must hear from me tonight, otherwise no one sleeps. That kind of <laughs> attitude, I've worked with people like that and that will never be me. Um, so I do try and sleep with my phone in a different room. I will have a quick look at emails while I'm on holiday just in case anything has cocked up. But I mainly do that just to give my assistant um, instruction on who to pester instead of me, as opposed to... I'm never off. I'm always on. It's just never, that's never been something that sunk in with me. And I think it's because age 30, watching people my age, absolutely age, gray, bags under their eyes, because the weight of being a commissioner is heavy. So I totally get why some people feel like I can't drop this. I can't let it go. I can't, all these plates that are spinning, who else but me? Who else but me? I can see them chasing their tail on that. And I think because I observe that, and thought that can never be me no job unless I am you know a round the clock child surgeon no job should ever have me running around like this and feeling so kind of instrumental and pivotal to you know pillars falling down so I always always make sure I manage my time I set I do I'm a list girl I am to-do lists on the phone to-do lists on post-its to-do lists on I email myself to-do list for the following day, whatever I forgot to do today, I ping it in an email so that becomes the first thing I do. It sounds like your mum and your family situation have been such an influence on mm -hmm. you being like this, so incredibly organised, yeah. so thoughtful. Like you are juggling a lot, like you say, but somehow also not drowning under the pressure of a very big job. But I don't want to make it sound like I'm superhuman. You know, I very much take time off because I like to unwind and like to switch off and like to not use my phone for that um, and use my phone for this. I, you know, when I was transitioning between jobs and feeling a little bit where to now, where to, what to do now, um, I had a little bit of internal kind of, you know, um, heartburn about transitioning from one company to another. You know, I felt very nurtured and looked after at the Beeb. You know, I walked in there on the six month um, coordinator contract and left as a commissioner. I got I got promoted every 18 months in that 16 in that six year um, period. And it didn't feel like I was really climbing the toughest mountain. I just knew I was competing against myself, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. And I and, and but I was having a lot of um, family issues. My mum had terrible, terrible um, health issues. We lost her in March this year, but before we lost her, there was a lot of sickness to deal with. Um, I got myself counselling um, because I was really toying with the, what can I drop? 
stuff needs to be dropped. What can I drop? You know, um, my husband has Asperger's, so he doesn't immediately always know when you're struggling or once that you do have to tell him. And I'm very much in that. But he lives with me. He can see I'm struggling. He can see I haven't slept well. Or he can see I've, you know, if I've left the laundry a few days, I must be busy. If I've, you know, tossed and turned at night and I look terrible in the morning, he must know something's my... And he, and he doesn't. So you have to communicate and you have to say, you need to let people know what you need. Yes. And you've learned that because of your own personal experience. And I imagine you apply that to your workplace as well. Yeah, I make sure that any junior members of our staff, they take um, ample time off. If they're meant to be four days a week, I better not see anything from them on the fifth day. If they're meant to finish at 5.30, I don't wanna see anything from you after six um, and things like that, because I want to instill that in them young. You know, we have lots of great mental health um, tools in our HR intranet um they're so 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 um um, invested in people at UK TV so I always encourage people to look for things that might be of health that it could be mental health it could be financial health um help it could be um familial things that they don't feel um like they can talk about whatever it is I just point them in the direction and say that portal is private and there might be something in there for you I'm such an advocate um, for that because you know I'd hate to see or have someone in a team near me have burnout um, I know people that have had burnout but no one I've worked with immediately and I wouldn't wish that on anyone coming up it's not a coincidence that when you let somebody from underrepresented groups into the decision-making suite they then usher in storytelling from people with underrepresented groups I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of the Imposter Club podcast. The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as Edit Cloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. Edit Cloud was created by editors for editors connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. The Imposter Club podcast is to help you feel less alone. Go and share it with someone you know who'd benefit. Now back to the chat. there is someone listening um who's finding themselves overwhelmed yeah what would you recommend that they do i think if you're overwhelmed the first thing to do is talk about it get it out of your head and down on some paper down in an email down over a cup of tea with somebody that's a good listener you don't want somebody that's a I'm not quite sure what you're talking about because all they'll do is say, oh, it'll be fine. You just need a bit of sleep. You're probably just tired. You're probably just this. You're probably just anyone in your life that's sort of well-meaning and will give you a gloss over response. Probably don't go to them. Maybe go to a colleague. Maybe go to someone who's been in your position. Maybe an ex-colleague. Someone that you used to work with that you remember used to sort of, you know, um, 
run around like a headless chicken, but now seems quite chill. Maybe someone who's left the industry in order to get chill. I think talking about it, seeking mental health assistance. I know within broadcasters and within networks, they have a lot of that, but for freelancers, you know, it might be an NHS and therefore waiting list. It might be a go private and therefore it costs um, uh, more than you think, but creating circles, gathering other heads around a problem can be really, really useful. So I think sharing, not internalizing, not taking it personally. There's a lot of people who I, I hear phrasing things in a way of, it's probably because I'm not good enough. That is heartbreaking. It cannot, cannot take hold. The internalizing, please, 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 if you can stop or if you can seek help on how to stop that because that is so unhelpful and it's it's the depression of the thing and it's the negativity trying to take a hold Yes, uh, more than anything, you know, but try and share it, try and share it in whatever way you can. I couldn't agree more. Talking is is key. Can we talk about representation? Because as I said in the intro, you were the first ever black female commissioning editor at the BBC. Mm-hmm. And that was only, what, five, six years ago? Yeah, 2018. Mm-hmm. So we are coming a long way. Lots of really positive um, things are happening um, in teams. You know, I'm, I'm part of it. It's, a, you know, yes. it's an exciting place to be. There's big changes happening. But how did you feel walking into workplaces, into meetings, just constantly being the only black person in the room? I'm kind of a take things for what they are, not what you'd like them to be person. I'm a take people for who they are and not who you want them to be person. So walking into the industry in 2006, as an assistant, I was treated like an assistant and I was welcomed like an assistant. And people understood my presence as the assistant. It's when I became the decision maker and I was walking into those spaces and it was confused looks and the almost coffee order until they clocked the name badge and then, it, oh, no, <laughs> reeling it back. You know, I noticed all of that. Um, and I just think this industry, it spends so much time talking about what it wants instead of enacting what it wants. We need to crack on and give people the chance to step in the room. Not a chance because they're not a risk, just the chance to step into the room, step into those roles, support them in whatever way they need support. But just stop with the hand wringing, stop with the we've never done this before, so I don't see how we can do this attitude and let people, because it's not a coincidence that as soon as I was in a decision-making role, I commissioned Chinese Burn. It didn't turn into a series, but it's the first all-female, all-Chinese sitcom in British TV history. I've commissioned Perfect. It's a sitcom that has three disabled leads, three wheelchair-using leads, and written by a writer with cerebral palsy. It's not a coincidence that when you let somebody from underrepresented groups into the decision-making suite, they then usher in storytelling from people with underrepresented groups because we know what it's like to look left, look right and notice everyone who's missing. There's a lot of people that have been doing that their whole careers and haven't noticed and that's an issue. 
you know, that I'll allow as the unconscious bit. But the rest of the time, you've got to be conscious that everyone in the meeting room nodded when you nodded, read that same Guardian thing you read, watched that. You know, it's sort of echo chambery, and we've got to get out of that. Oh, man, we do. And that is that is the everything for me, what you just said. That is the whole point of having diverse, whatever you call that, you know, whatever your definition of that word is, mm-hmm. completely diverse teams. Because... Mm-hmm. How boring would telly be if absolutely everybody was in one room, looked the same, had went to the same uni, um, had the same upbringing, had the same wives and girlfriends and boyfriends and husbands, and then made stuff for the telly? It would yeah. be dull, dull, dull. And you yeah. know, it's absolutely vital. And you know, you're a huge part of making amazing, funny, excellent telly. Um, I've heard that there's a third member of your relationship, Sarah. <laughs> who is is. that or rather what is that that third member of my relationship the thing that makes me a thruple is my (laughs) trusty ipad she's not in the room with me at the moment which is rare but basically i think you'll be surprised at how many people want to enter our industry and don't watch a lot of things You'll be surprised at how many people are in our industry and don't watch everything. They watch whatever zeitgeist. Oh, everyone's talking about traces. Quick, I better watch traces. Everyone's talking about succession. Let me get on it. But ultimately, aren't telly addicts. And I think maybe it's because scripted has to go through so many fine filters in order to ring true. I'd feel very remiss if I wasn't aware of all the ways it's similar to or differentiates itself from something that's already happened or already been out there there might be a sprinkling of a character from something bigger that we enjoyed and we'd love to see more of that type of character and your thing features that person so even though someone could go isn't that similar the way you've done it is different enough and the only way you know that is by watching everything and reading everything so yeah the ipad it comes with me in the bathroom, in the kitchen, on holidays, down the roads when I go pop out to get some stuff from the shop. And, you know, it keeps me company, but it also keeps me informed. It keeps me top of my game. It it means that my references are always on point. I feel very satisfied when I have development meetings and people are jotting down the three or four um, TV shows I've told them their thing is similar to or to make sure their thing doesn't become too similar to because they haven't seen it. Yeah. And, and that is it, that's in your armory as well, isn't it? About you feeling in the know. And actually that's <laughs> been a common theme throughout our conversation here has <laughs> been, yeah, you had a kind of different career before you came in, but then you made sure you had all of the ingredients close at hand. You kept yeah. on top of them all. You called, you know, things out. You found your confidence by watching and joining dots and, you know, just building your own personal development your own sort of cv along the way but also Mm -hmm. i just think honestly you really inspire me because you don't seem to have ever doubted yourself so in in enough i mean maybe you have am i wrong no i've never doubted myself but i've definitely recognized when i don't know a ton about a thing and i've gone off and made sure i did so i set myself homework based on things i gleaned from uh, conversations. I had a, a a teacher at college who used to say he was a law teacher, but he used to say, "Every one of you, go and buy the Evening Standard, get yourself a highlighter, highlight every single word you don't understand, and go and look it up." 
Don't go through conversations not knowing what people are talking to. So imagine 10 years later, I land in an industry that's so jargon heavy. That's what I do. I go off and with my highlighter and find out what the hell everyone's talking about. That is awesome that you remember mm-hmm. a teacher who said that. That's really stuck with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to get a highlighter pen out for my <laughs> next uh, meeting where people are using too much corporate stuff. I'm never I'm never afraid to ask a silly question. Yeah, exactly. Never be afraid to ask a question. No. Okay. And then um, what I like to ask, I'd be interested to see what you say here. What would you say to the younger Sarah at the beginning of your career if you knew then what you know now? Oh, God. Um I think for younger me, I think being gregarious and curious as an innate character trait means that you're the puppy that's chasing the balloons in the park. You're chasing bubbles in the park. Focus. Figure out early what path you'd like to take. Because again, I'm not just a rare bird who has become a commissioner through the ranks of broadcasters. I'm also a rare bird who's hopped from factual to specialist factual to to factual entertainment to scripted. Um, And I'm not just doing scripted comedy anymore for UK TV. I'm doing drama and comedy, so I'm fully scripted. So making those fact to fiction leaps isn't usual in our industry either. Um, They've stood me in good stead. I've made it work. But I think if I'd honed in on my one true love, which is scripted um, drama storytelling, comedy um, character storytelling, I would have been able to have done more by now. So I think focus, young lady. Um, Stop being interested slash nosy about everything and pick a lane. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. Oh, I love all of your lanes. They're amazing. <laughs> all of the lanes has made this road that you are driving on. To be fair, yeah. I have arrived at a road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I have loved hearing about how you've got to here and thank beyond. You. It sounds yeah. as well like you're constant. You ha- you are like a sponge absorbing new things and going new places. Always keeping yeah. yourself on trend and what's you know what's going where. I mean, what would you like to be doing in ten years' time? Have you thought about that? Well, that's the thing. As a lover of learning, I always, I don't see everything that I don't know, every area that I'm unfamiliar with as some daunting, you must not go here. I see it as a, wouldn't it be great if I cracked this? Wouldn't it be great if I knew more about this on the other side? So I think there's no way for me to know. I think the plan would be, I'd love to pivot to teaching. I think um, early intervention with young people is really important to me. I ran a couple of events at the BBC Um, which encouraged um, people from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, I specifically went to the bottom of the Ofsted register and invited the 15 bottom schools in to talk to people of colour at the BBC who had non-traditional roles. So all of these kids were sort of, oh, telly, that's hosting, that's being a host or being an actor, isn't it? And I was like, no, 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 there's a black girl in legal, there's a black guy in finance, there's this working class um, white guy, Charlie Sloth, who um, works in um, radio. There's this, this, like we all are here, but we're in jeans and Converse, guys. You don't have to wear a suit and go to the city. Why don't you try for a job in telly? And you can see their little eyes. The light bulbs are going off like, you're allowed to look like you and sound like us and be from Labrook Grove and wear Converse and get a job that pays okay? What? Isn't that fantastic to open their eyes like that? Isn't it? 
you know, to be a media lawyer, guys. They'd be, and you know, because black and brown parents they always want you to be a doctor, lawyer, or a failure. Those are your sort of choices in life. <laughs> so <laughs> you could be a media lawyer. So you get the double tick of here, mum, I'm a lawyer, but actually, I'm a lawyer that gets to go to screenings. You know, exactly. That's cute. I've always said that to people in finance and accounts. It's like I really resent it when someone at a, like a dinner or an event goes to me. Oh, I'm just an accountant. Mm, bit boring. Yeah. I'm like, you don't. Firstly, don't say it like that. It's awesome. But secondly, if you want to be a bit cooler, yeah, go you work could in do a cool it, yeah, in a different industry. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, I think a tutor of some sort, a lecturer of some sort, would be really great. I'd love a, you know, to leave TV in my early 50s and then have a 20 year career molding the next generation as my second act that'd be cute amazing well Dorothy Byrne who's also in this That's, series of the Imposter Club Dorothy is um, president of Murray Edwards College at Cambridge there you go there you go there she we is go. an absolute so she... inspiration to me that was one of the teams I worked in in 2006 when I was an, when I was an assistant yeah amazing she's incredible oh, Sarah, thank you so much again for coming on to the Imposter Club. I hope you've, um, you enjoyed talking it all through. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I think I'm definitely in the Imposter Club because I know it's real and I know it affects people. Um, but I hope that I'm an example of how you can really see it as water of a duck's back. Don't let it stick to you. Don't let it grab a hold. You know, find the way to tell your story through those feelings. That's it for this episode of The Imposter Club, brought to you by talented people. I'm Kimberly Godwell, and it has been lovely to hang out with you while you commute slash gym slash dog walk or whatever you're doing. If this has struck a chord, please go ahead and share it with your friends in that closed WhatsApp group I'm not in or on your social networks. Our aim is to reach as many fellow imposters as we can to share love and learnings and create a sense of belonging. And if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to the pod so you don't miss an episode drop. Thank you to Talented People, produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, exec producer, Rosie Turner, editor, Ben Mullins. See you later. And thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.